Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. On October 25th at 7 p.m. 2023, IU Cinema in Bloomington, Indiana, will be screening a new 4K restoration of David Cronenberg's body horror classic, Videodrome. Phil and I will be in attendance. In fact, the screening will be followed by a live recording of a Weird Studies episode on the film, and we couldn't be more excited. If you're in the Bloomington area on October 25th, we hope to see you there. Purchase your tickets at cinema.indiana.edu. Long live the new flesh. Just over a month ago, MIT Press released an abridged edition of William Hope Hodgson's The Nightland as part of its Radium Age series of early 20th century science fiction novels. Writer, lecturer, and scholar of the weird Eric Davis wrote a superb foreword for the book, Phil and I were delighted to have Eric join us for what follows, a freewheeling discussion of the strangest and most ensorceling of novels. Eric, of course, is well known to longtime listeners of the show, host of the Greatly Missed Expanding Mind podcast, creator of the Burning Shore Substack, and author of such books as the classic Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, as well as the magisterial high weirdness, drugs, esoterica, and visionary experience in the 70s, he shares with Victoria Nelson and a few others the perhaps dubious honor of having pioneered the non-existent field of weird studies. Yes, Eric is a known quantity around these parts. William Hope Hodgson, on the other hand, was, at least to Phil and me, little more than a name one occasionally sees in weird fiction litanies concocted by people eager to show their erudition before Eric had us read his absolutely bonkers masterpiece. This is the kind of book you remember hearing about without ever being able to figure out quite where or when you did. It's also a book which, when you finally get around to reading it, thereby confirming that it wasn't just a dream, makes you realize you still had no idea what a novel could do. Don't get me wrong, The Nightland isn't an easy book. I had a few reasons to compare it to Beckett's prose fiction in our conversation with Eric. One of them is that it's a slog, almost an ordeal, both for its protagonist and its reader. This, despite MIT Press's abridgment, which I am told one should shut up and be thankful for. That all being said, The Nightland was one of the most rewarding reading experiences of the year for me. It's a book I know I'll read again and revisit in reveries for the rest of my life. A quick summary should suffice in equipping you for the long journey in tonight. The story takes place millions of years in the future, after the sun has gone out. The last humans live in vast pyramidal arcologies located in the depths of a great rift in the Earth's crust, a Stygian underworld our sad descendants share with the host of monsters, demons, and titans, in whose unearthly eyes they are negligible non-entities at best, elusive delicacies at worst. The largest of these monsters seem to abide by geological time, 
having barely moved over the thousands of years for which the pyramid dwellers have watched them squat grotesquely on the bleak horizon. One day, a wizard scientist receives a signal from another human settlement, located somewhere out there in the nightland, and he persuades his superiors to let him venture out into the dark alone to find the others, and in particular, a woman who he is convinced was his true love in an incarnation dating all the way back to our own familiar 17th century. Weird does not begin to describe Hodgson's imaginary world, but the weirdest thing about the Nightland is that it feels more real than most fictions set in the here and now. It is also strangely relevant to we inhabitants of the rhizomatic arcologies of 2023, who similarly find ourselves gazing through glass contraptions at an outside world that seems less and less hospitable to our kind. I hope that our conversation with Eric will convince you to order the new edition and give that other world a whirl. Of course, that's not the only hope I have for you, dear listener. You know what I'm talking about. Whereas the denizens of the dying earth pyramid that will be the last bastion of our race depend on the mysterious earth current to power their machines, Phil and I depend on the flow of love, gratitude, and money that comes to us by way of the Weird Studies Patreon. The sun may not yet have gone out. We may yet live on the surface of the earth rather than its abyssal depths. Nevertheless, it's a hard world out there, and without the generous support of our patrons, we would have stopped cranking out this free show a long time ago. So if you like what you hear today, consider visiting patreon.com forward slash weird studies and having a look at our tiers of support. Okay, Into the Nightland with Eric Davis. It's too bad that we're slating in now because we were onto something there. So before we started recording, we were discussing the uh, flavor of metal. It's like sometimes I was reading the book and I was I was like, this is like a seventies metal album cover transformed <laughs> into a baroque Victorian novel. Does that does that seem right? You have like uh, real world monsters, an air of sinister evil, uh, neo medieval aesthetic the hero who's kind of you know frank frazetta clad but it's a bleak planetary landscape yeah. with this immense pyramid uh on the horizon yeah, yeah it's it's pretty much everything you want yeah yeah i owned that van back in the 70s <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because i just found before we logged on there i i found a map there's several maps that have been made of the nightland they're really fascinating to look at. It's like, wow, I want to run a D&D campaign set in this world kind of thing. <laughs> it's just perfect. And maybe just by way of introducing people to this strange landscape, I'm just going to list off a few of the features, the landmarks that the people of the far future will use to orient themselves in the great wasteland of the real. The Watcher of the Northwest, a creature that just sits there all the time, like the Statue of Liberty, but alive. The Plain of Blue Fire, the House of Silence, which is a house, but God knows what lives in there. The Road by the Quiet City, the Country of Seas. 
So good. There's oh, yeah. The road where the silent ones walk. The, and the place where the silent ones kill. And then in the far east, you have the country whence comes the great laughter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the thing that nods, I just picked up on that one. The thing that nods. So well, where are we? Can you kind of situate us, Eric, in this imaginal landscape? Yeah. William Hope Hodgson's, uh, whatever, 1912 book. It has a couple of firsts. One of them is that it's the first example of the modest, but to my mind, most excellent genre, subgenre of the dying earth. And that means a far future planet earth where not only has the civilization we know disappeared or transformed, but the world that exists is a strange amalgam of far futuristic, usually post-apocalyptic kind of degraded landscape, but it has some quality of ancient magic to it. Some, you know, it, it kind of demonstrates this idea that rationality isn't just a discovery about how the world actually works, but it, in a way is its own spell that creates a more rational world. And then as rationality and the technologies of rationality break down, the world itself becomes more magical and enchanted, but it's not just like a return to some easy pre-modern mythological framework. It's some kind of creepy amalgam of um, materialism and supernaturalism. And so that's the landscape. The sun is essentially dead. So it's a land of night and humans live in this vast pyramid this enormous, you know, far larger than any human structure we have today, uh, pyramid that is kept alive through the earth current. So there's some life still in the planet, despite the, the collapse of the sun. And outside of this um, pyramid and the circle of protection that surrounds it, like a magic circle of old, there is this landscape that is at once a bleak, empty, sublime, horrifying, deadly nightscape and a kind of haunt of monsters, both physical monsters, kind of proto-men and giants, but also supernatural evils um, mm -hmm. that have a quasi-materialist dimension to them. They're not like the devils of old. They more remind us of what Lovecraft will articulate later as kind of cosmic yeah. evils. Yeah. There are really interesting moments where the narrator, the protagonist, is like looking at what he thinks is a creature, but then admits that maybe it was just a mountain. Like there's a weird kind of apparitional quality to these, because there are several, like you said, several types or classes of monsters. Some of them are super real and physical and attack him and stuff. Some of them are just these gigantic figures on the landscape that seem part and parcel of the landscape. And it's never quite clear how physical they are or whether they're just kind of like almost optical effects, which nevertheless, that, but I don't mean by that, that they're not there, but that they're like, you see them from an angle. There's something so effective about that. In a way, it's a very different strategy for conveying cosmic monstrosities than the strategy you'll find in Lovecraft. 
which is to pile on adjectives and adverbs, which is fine. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Lovecraft, but the way he does it here is by this weird subtraction or doubt in the person experiencing these things so that you're like, are these people just all nuts and they've just imagined that the mountains surrounding their pyramid are beings or are those beings? Because you never really get a moment where those more titanesque creatures interact really with the characters in a non-ambiguous way. It's just that I find that so effective and so that's what makes it so, you know, horrific for me when I... I was like, I'm projecting myself into this book. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, there's a couple of things to say on that. I mean, one of the features that I really love, and I noticed even more on reading it again for this interview, um, is the, and again, it's actually an interesting contrast with Lovecraft, is the self-consciousness of the narrator. So on the one hand, Hodgson added this whole other layer to the book that in a mm. way almost didn't need to be there, that he writes in this fake 17th century style and it has to do with this elaborate other layer of the book which is not really emphasized in our abridgment which is that it originally starts in the 17th century and then the narrator is actually somebody from our time who's remembering their time in the 17th century but it's projected into the far future and it's a very peculiar framing device that doesn't really make that much sense on its own terms but does help create both the weirdness of the novel and that heavy metal blend of far future mm -hmm. and you know neo-medieval kind of magic which so in a way is quite wonderful but there's another feature of the narrator's voice that i really noted which is that he's very aware of the fragility of thought and perception both the yeah. power and the fragility of it so there's a lot of stuff about signals and subterfuge and watching as well as this sense of the ambiguity of information and the yeah. ambiguity of thought and i think the part that really strikes me that is again interesting contrast with lovecraft is that there are these sounds that appear in the, mm. in the novel at a few places. And at one point they hear this whistling sound, this very creepy cry, or he hears this, this cry. And when I read it first, when I first read it, I thought, oh yeah, this is like the, the piping around the throne of Azathoth in, in Lovecraft. It's like this eerie human or creaturely piping. But in the Nightland, you hear it and it's animate. And then you realize actually it's just a venting of these volcanic right. you know, forces in the ground. So it's just a weird sound that nature is making or the cosmos is making, which was weird. And then there's another thing, which is one of the most supernatural elements that importantly also has a spatial dimension is the doorways in the night. Oh yeah. And it's through these doorways that the cosmic evil forces, the ones that aren't really embodied or that they're not going to be able to fight, come through. And he describes the sound, the humming that these doorways make. And there's this really odd description where they're at once very far away and incredibly near. And there was something in that, almost a psychedelic sense of how sound can be inside and outside and in that very ambiguity, open up like a third dimension to yet another realm of sound that he describes very well, that really plays on that 
ambiguity you're talking about and the the kind of sense of fragility of perception, even in a very uh, vivid uh, landscape. I just want to append what you just said to by reading the, because you do write about the doorways in your wonderful preface to the newly published MIT Press edition. Perhaps the most unnerving moment in this often unnerving novel occurs in the chapter titled The Nightland, when the narrator senses a, quote, queer and improper noise passing through the night. Hearing a low moaning hum that seems to issue at once from near his head and from some infinite remove, the narrator recognizes that the sound is a capitalized doorway in the night, an interdimensional fissure whose opening or shattering heralds the possible destruction of his soul. Faced with this prospect whose proximate cause is the foolish and unwise wisdom of the meddling olden men of learning. I love that. The narrator prepares to take his suicide capsule. He manages to elude the doorway, but feels compelled to tell the tale, for, quote, in truth, there was a horror so wondrous and drear about it that I can forget it not. The suicide capsule, to me, is the, the touch that makes this, like... Because these things are, I was reading one blog post, some, somebody on the blogosphere was describing the creatures of the Nightland as pneumovores, that they eat souls, and that's what you're referring to with the soul munchers, and that a mere sound is enough to warrant ending your life right there, because there are fates so much worse. And I, I just found that whole scene to be the implications of it, that these doorways are just spontaneously opening and more of these things are coming in or just this weird kind of brokenness of the world that's never quite explained and leaves you in this state of suspense and ambiguity. Just, I find it so effective. If I may, I would like to read a little bit of that passage, a very effective passage, and give something of the flavor of this book generally with its artificial archaisms. After passing through some areas where he's had to fight various flesh and blood monsters, though monsters of very strange flesh. He finds himself in a very quiet place and at first congratulates himself on having found somewhere safe to go. And then it goes on, yet in truth, was I come to a worse place than any, maybe. For as I went forward, striding very strong and making a good speed, I did hear presently a little noise upward in the night, and some ways unto my left, that had seeming as that it were a strange low sound that did come down to me out of a hidden doorway above. For, indeed, though the sound did come from very nigh, as it did seem no more than a score feet above my head, yet was it a noise that did come out of a great and mighty distance, and out of a foreign place. And I did know the sound, though never, as you may suppose, could I have heard it in all my life. Yet had I read in one of the records, and he's talking about records in an ancient library, and again in a second and a third, how that certain of all they that had adventured from the pyramid into the nightland to seek for knowledge had chanced to hear a queer and improper noise above them in the night, and the noise had been strange, and did come from but a little way upward in the darkness, yet was also from a great and monstrous distance and did seem to moan and hum quietly, and to have a different sounding from all noises of earth. And in the records it was set forth that these were those same doorways in the night, which were told of in an ancient and half-doubted tale of the world, that was much in favor of the children of the pyramid, and not disdained by certain of our wiser men, and had been thus through all the latter ages. 
and I did seem to know the sound upon the moment, for my heart grew swift to understand, and it was a very dread uncomfortable sound, and you shall know how it did seem, if you will conceive of a strange noise that doth happen far away in the country, and the same noise to seem to come to you through an open door nearby, and this is but a poor way to put it, yet how shall I make the thing more known to you? So glad you read that passage. That for me was one of the most haunting on the reread. So effective. And uh, again, that quality of tentativeness and also his tentativeness in being able to communicate. And he's, you're quite involved, even though it's difficult to read in the reasons like when we try to read the passages, we stumble over the words because it's just awkward. Yeah, but it, it actually draws you in in a really interesting way. You feel quite intimately involved in the guy's story because yeah. of how the character is constantly well, you might be thinking this, or as you can figure out, or as I mentioned to you before, and as you might imagine, you know, you're kind of involved in it in a way. But the sound thing was really uncanny for me personally, because some of the weirder experiences that I've had in my life have involved sound. And particularly a number of times, it hasn't happened for quite a number of years, but a number of times I would get humming buzzing noises in hypnagogia as I was going to sleep that would become like signals that I would tune into, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when I kind of jumped on that carrier wave, they would take me to another dimension, to like a, a, a dream world or an alien encounter or an alien radio station. So there's something about the sound, the uncanniness of sound, where it's simultaneously absolutely in your head. There's no way to get it out of it. You can't shut it out because it's a sound happening in your head. And it can reach into the alien and the other and the, and the non-worldly so powerfully, particularly humming. And if he hadn't used the word humming, I'd be like, okay, whatever. But it had to be a hum. You know? <laughs> I love I it. Like, That's it. Knows. And there's so many UFO accounts or accounts of people who have been abducted or had some kind of uh, experience with UFOs that have similar kind of threshold liminal passages where you pass through some state and that passage yeah. is announced by a hum. I remember or a buzz or a hiss, but hums especially. Yeah. Remember Stuart Davis's uh, story about the mantis creatures that he encountered and the the weird kind of hum over the house, like or like this kind of almost like this beeping. There's something about sound, or like a too. tuning fork. I remember him saying that it was like hearing a tuning fork, which is very interesting because since having that conversation with Stuart, I've read so many right. accounts of UFOs where people are like saying it sounded like a struck tuning fork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That anticipatory sound or that threshold sound event. The there's something innately transportive about sound, maybe even more so to a hyper visual culture like ours that is on the brink of falling into the acoustic, you know, as McLuhan would put it, the falling back into that kind of primal tribal soundscape. Think about a mundane example, but just as chilling. It's like you're sitting at home in your living room one night and you hear footsteps upstairs. Or it's three in the morning and there's a knock at the door. There's something about how sounds immediately evoke images. They immediately ask for you to flesh, clothe them in image, right? Not that sounds aren't images of a sort, but sound is how the world reaches us 
you know, kind of beyond our field of vision. So there's something outsider-ish about sound uh, and uh, you know, sounds that whose source is unclear. And the way that he emphasizes the fact that this sound was both very near, almost like in his head and out there at the same time, points to this liminal quality of sound in general, maybe, you know, a liminal quality that it acquires when you, we overemphasize vision and perspectival consciousness, like sound becomes a kind of rift in our world model. It doesn't quite make sense. Well, um, Ong has a great line about the power of sound where he says, uh, sound cannot be sounding without the use of power. A hunter can see a buffalo, smell, taste, and touch a buffalo when the buffalo is completely inert, even dead. But if he hears a buffalo, he had better watch out. Something is going on. Right. And, you know, sounds are traces of action. And yet sound by its nature does not present itself as unambiguously located right. as visual information. And so you are always having this kind of experience of sounds that portend great doings, like the potential of something to happen, yeah. while at the same time remaining in, it, in themselves very ambiguous. Yeah. Interesting. And if we want to just broaden, like, the scene that you just read the way that he plays with sound there and proximity. He plays with spatial qualities of sound. Is it mm, near? Yeah. Is it far? It's both. It's neither. He does that throughout the book. Mm -hmm. As Eric, as you were saying earlier, this book is a first in many respects. But one thing it does, which I think it does pick up from its predecessors, for example, Jonathan Swift, is playing with scale. Um, the book really plays with scale, proximity, fucking with the human sensorium in a way that it's like the human sensorium meeting something that's not amenable to it, that's not quite conformable to it. And so things that should be the size of a human being appearing as enormous. And you think, well, am I small or is it big? It's, it's this weird kind of almost Lewis Carroll quality to the book sometimes where things are just gigantic or tiny or um, close or far. And playing with that is part of what injects that kind of like delicious sort of ambiguity in the text, you know? Yeah, I, I love that insight you have there about scale and its relationship with some earlier texts, because I, I also see it as trying to reflect something that is new in the early 20th century, late 19th century, which is the kind of crack that Darwin and the Darwinian vision opens up in the imagination. And one of the things I love about this book is the way in which it tunes into some of the horror implications of the Darwinian view. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in other writers of what the series editor Joshua Glenn calls the radium age, this kind of era of science fiction before the so-called golden age that starts in the 1930s with John Campbell, where there's this strange period kind of between Jules Verne and H.D. Wells, who are kind of like the progenitors and the sort of 30s pulp science fiction, where there's just a lot of weird stuff going on. And some of that material is very, very influenced by like trying to think a Darwinian history as opposed to a biblical history. And mm. one feature of that, I believe, is 
a sudden radically different relationship to scale. So you can imagine at the beginning of the 19th century, many perfectly well-educated people believed that the earth was about 8,000 years old because that's what the Bible said. And then at some point in their lifetime or the lifetime of their children, it, it opens up to unfathomable eons of time. I mean, that's a mind fuck if we think about it. But like to graduate or to be kicked out of this manageable 8,000 years into eons of time is kind of horrifying in some ways. One of the ways that Hodgson does that is he doesn't just refer to time. So this is, you know, millions and millions of years in the future. But even within the context of that world, there's all of these two big numbers. The pyramid is, I can't even remember, 10,000. Yeah, seven (laughs) miles high. It's got a hundred underground layers of farmland where they grow yeah. all the food and it's just, <laughs> it, it, it's just a no and and then nothing's happened for a hundred thousand years like no one's right. left for a hundred thousand so you keep getting that scale thing you're talking about is also a way to to just remind the reader of the alienness of the situation that we actually find ourselves in yeah. if this darwinian view is believable if it were really yeah. in that zone and it kind of reminds me of the strange resonance that Westerners who are looking for a sort of spiritual cosmology that fits with modern science and they discover in, you know, Indian cosmology, the fact that it has these myriads of kalpas that last, you know, a hundred million eons. And there's this sense of the enormity of time in Indian cosmology that's not present in the way. And you kind of go, wow, yeah, there's something there. And in a way, Mm -hmm. like Hodgson's playing with like, how do you stretch cosmology to, to, you know, and not just cosmology, just numbers and scale to constantly remind us of the fragility of our merely human frame. Our tiny little island, yeah. And also, you know, it's very interesting, something you said, Eric, about how this is moving from a kind of a biblical understanding to a scientific understanding of the cosmos, it's not only that it's suddenly being thrown into the dark abyss of time. Charles Taylor writes about this in his Secular Age, about the transformative effect of that on a kind of collective European psyche, but also a sense of a development of organisms without providence. Yeah. Or more generally, a sense of a vastness of a universe that is not a universe that is for us, not a universe that has been established in its mechanisms and its particulars by divine providence. You know, like these creatures, ab humans and giants and the silent watchers and so on, these are all creatures from entirely outside our understanding of what is fitted for human beings. I and mean, human beings are just walled up in this redoubt basically forever. And the sense of organisms that don't exist because they fit into some kind of like watchwork plan. Or great chain um, of being. Of the cosmos. Right. Yeah, some great chain of being, but just monstrosities, just these things that yeah. have burst out of the universe in a kind of uh, inconceivable way. That's a different kind of vastness, a different sort of thing that makes you catch your breath. Another way of registering the littleness of the human within the cosmos. And also the contingency. And there's, this reminds me of one of my favorite passages that I hadn't noted the first times I read this. 
that really is trying to swallow in this Darwinian concept that has a quality of horror and contingency, but is also kind of beautiful and smart. <laughs> when he goes, he's looking around all the weird creatures around the, you know, one of these fire pits. It's a rat creature and it's eating a snake or something. And after that, I saw many creatures that went about the fire and did have warmth from the fire and drink from the spring. And surely I did ponder that the peoples of this our age, meaning the early 20th century, should say, if they stood with me, that providence had made nigh together the warmth and the drink that were needful unto life. But rather did this thing seem to me otherwise, that these creatures did be but of their circumstance, and if that it had been in another way, then had they grown of their wits to meet it to their means of life. Yet, as some would say, the arguments do but meet and be the same thing. And neither way do I care in this place, but do more than to show unto you the working of my brain in this way and that as I made my journey, which is a characteristic thing he does is he has some big thought that he goes, yeah, I, I can't even say it's true. I, I was just tripping out. I just wanted to share that with you. But <laughs> yeah. the thing he's sharing it's totally awesome. It's like that, like yeah. what an amazing that the substance doesn't lie in the creature and the idea that the environment is designed to support the creature, but that the creature develops in relationship to the environment and therefore there's a contingency in evolution. And it's a beautiful idea, but it does, that quality yeah. of contingency opens up a kind of horror. And it, yeah. it, it from especially from an earlier perspective, it's naturalistic and it's kind of horrifying. It's wondrous and it's horrible. I like the way you brought in like Indian cosmology into this conversation, Eric, because 
a parallel movement, you know, parallel to Hodgson as a late Victorian or post-Victorian working in, because he does draw a lot in this book on, for example, on psychical research, psychical science as it existed at that time. So the ideas of psychic powers, of a, a psyche that has a kind of physicality that some science of the future might be able to measure. Like the technology of this time seems to deal in stuff that we would associate with the supernatural or with psi, but this is a future science that has kind of mapped out those certain areas of reality that allow them to tap into. For instance, they can use machines to communicate, but they can also use, you know, the master word and telepathy to communicate. And neither of those things are explained. They're just taken for granted. There's there's just weird technologies of this future time. I was, I'm trying to f- kind of fit Hodgson in his context here and thinking about things like Madame Blavatsky or Rudolf Steiner and theosophists and others who were trying to give us a mythologized yet vast abyssal version of time, more aligned maybe with certain ancient Indian cosmologies that would be able to digest or metabolize the revelations of a Darwin or whatever, and yet still maintain this sense of not design in the clockmaker sense, not design in the way that freaked people out when Galileo told them that planets were just like modeled peaches floating in space, but like um, designed on another scale, designed in some kind of vast karmic sense. And you do get the sense of that in this book. Like it's it's cosmic mm. horror, but there is like the spirit of goodness descends. There's this angelic power that seems to be guiding humans, that seems to occasionally, as you mentioned in your preface, in an almost kind of deus ex machina sort of sense, this light shows up and guides them or helps them. So there is a kind of sense to think. So it's like, it's not so much an abdication or an abandonment of the human to radical contingency, as you might find in Ligotti or Lovecraft. It's an attempt to deal with the radical contingency while still searching, still hoping for a place that humans might inhabit that might not simply belie or betray the hopes that kind of motivate us, right? And the meaning we seek in the world. There's a weird play going on there. It's closer to Arthur Mackin in that sense. And Mackin has place for meaning in his horror, but the meaning itself is both wondrous and horrific at the same time. He never lets go of that kind of dichotomy. So I find that to be of its time in that sense, in a good way, like of its time in a good way, that it's holding on to a hope that later weird writers would kind of revel in in dashing. That's a really interesting one. And it has to do, I mean, for example, that's the way Lovecraft read it. And certainly other people, uh, it's even more clear in House on the Borderland and, and earlier an equally awesome novel in the second half of which the narrator goes on this immense cosmic voyage through the future. And it's just totally psychedelic, amorphous, in many ways kind of non-narrative or only vaguely narrative. In the midst of this very alien trip, there's an encounter with the beloved. And it's, right. it, ha- it has this quality of sentiment. And it has this quality of love, which is, of course, the central meaning in the Nightland is not just the powers of goodness that save him, but the fact that the whole reason that he's on his trip is because he's contacted this maid in the slipstream of psychic reality, you know, who's actually living on a distant pyramid that's much smaller and maybe losing its force, and that they have this kind of astral communication, and he recognizes that she's his great love, and that this is motivating his whole search. And 
it's a powerful idea. But then, of course, as modern readers, do we read this as Hodgson's fall back into Victorian sentiment, which is the way that a Lovecraft would read it? Or instead, do we read it as a more interesting, symptomatic attempt to kind of like balance or or integrate or, or sort of bring worlds together? And, you know, that had a big influence on, on the fact that this is an abridged edition. I mean, normally I'm the kind of person who would not want to be involved with an abridged edition. But when Joshua Glenn approached me to say, hey, we're going to do the Nightland, we're going to abridge it because it's much longer <laughs> in its totality. It has a introductory chapter that's very peculiar. That's like the opening of a frame story that you never return to. And then the sentimentality that's already a feature of the novel. And at the end of this edition, you, there's an encounter with the, the love and, and things sort of develop as on their return journey. But in the parts that we excise, the mawkishness and the whatever yeah. you want to call it, uh, old school misogyny <laughs> of the of worshipful sort um, gets so out of hand that it's like almost hard to read. Um, yeah. And Hodgson is very interesting that way, like the way that all of these great, I think all, if you're, if you're writing great cosmic horror, great maybe great horror in general, but if it has that supernatural dimension, it's more meaningful to me. You can't help but begin to contemplate the person who's writing it. There's just no way out. You have yeah. to think about who is Lovecraft, who is Ligotti, who is Stephen King, you know, who is Arthur mm -hmm. Machen? Like, what are these guys actually wrestling with in their souls, in their in their lives? For me, anyway, it's it's a much stronger demand than a lot of other kinds of fiction where I don't necessarily care that much about how the person real. I don't really care what Joyce was like. Yeah, he was a genius and a weirdo and neurotic and whatever, yeah. you know. He was cool and a creep. I don't really care. But there's something about the subjectivity of the horror writer, like a religious writer, where you kind of want to know where their mm. spirit is at. And Hodgson was really interesting that way. I mean, he really is kind of a creature of his time, of the Edwardian era, with one foot in Victorian right. attitudes and one foot like in the future and seeing what was was kind of coming. And and I, this time upon reading it, I actually enjoyed, despite it's sometimes hilarious, like he calls his the maid at one point his... Um, his babe slave. Baby slave? My baby slave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's getting spicy in there. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to read that passage because I actually pulled it up in anticipation <laughs> that we would get to the baby slave. And this should give you, the reader, listener at home, some sense of the flavor of the passages that were excised. And she made protest that she should truly walk, for that I was all weary, and she did come to her strength again. And indeed, I carried her a certain way, and then did put her down on her feet. And truly, her knees did so tremble that she had not stood let thee to walk. And I caught her up again, and I kissed her, and I told her that I did be surely her master in verity, and she mine own baby slave. <laughs> and truly you shall not laugh upon me, for I was so human as any, and a man doth talk this way with his maid. <laughs> Of course, you're laughing when he says that. It's like he yeah. anticipates our. Yeah, I think I think even I think even in 1912, that one got a few chuckles. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't help but even think that he laughed. He was like, "Did I just write that?" Um, <laughs> no, but 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 uh, at the same time, okay. And I think that this takes us to another zone that I was hoping to touch on, which is this kind of knight errant quest form that he's adopting, which I found super interesting. Let's talk about that. The fact that it's a quest, like, okay, just hmm. superficial thoughts that come to me. There's a similarity here. When I'm reading this, I was reminded of, first of all, of medieval romances, which I love. And I really hope one day we'll be able to deal with some of those because I find it to be a super fascinating form, the medieval romance. It's totally weird. And I found that this really kind of captures that sense of weirdness of like leaving the fastness, leaving the redoubt and entering the wasteland. And then uh, being treated to a series of ordeals along the way as you're trying to make your way to the beloved or whatever. So very kind of knightly, fantastical, romantic form there. But also with retrospect, now I'm like being like the protagonist. I'm living both of that time and today. Strangely, I found that this book was a weird precursor to the novels of Beckett. There's something so similar to me in the feeling of the world that you will, for example, if you read Molloy, you know, the, the, the trilogy, the Beckett trilogy, which is essentially a kind of schizophrenic walk thing where that's, I'm using that term from Deleuze and Guattari. So it's like uh, someone who is in a, a landscape that is both a landscape and a mindscape. And it's really hard to separate the subjective from the objective. In fact, that dichotomy ceases to have meaning altogether as this character is traveling through something that is both real and a dream. Yeah, I just love the way that Hodgson to me seems to like bridge the medieval romances of like a Christian de Troyes or something like that. And like the modern schizophrenic walk as depicted by Beckett, and also prefigures 1912, you know, a couple of years before the First World War. I'm sure that a lot of people walked around Europe six or seven years later and felt like they were in this novel with these tanks and these ruins and these bombed out cities and just walking through this complete bleak landscape. It's almost like uh, Hodgson was sensing the appearance within Europe of such landscapes very, very soon, right? Kind of like at the same time, Jung was having his visions of like the war coming. So, sorry, hmm. big uh, offload there. <laughs> no, and, 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 the, and the gases, the, you know, there's a whole like history of sort of miasmas and stuff, but the ways in which the idea of poison gas functions in here is a bit eerie. One of the ways that I think about it is also it seems to me like it's not just a, a kind of rhetorical or literary idea. There's a kind of imaginative fitness mm. of a neo-medieval model to post-apocalyptic situations. Yeah. Why that is the case, we could think about it in a lot of different ways, but there's something just fit about the fact that at this time, for reasons that are not particularly well explained, though he does try to explain them, that they don't have like these enormous fantastical weapons that you would presumably have if you were able to build an immense seven mile high pyramid and run a whole civilization in there. Instead, they're outfitted with these weird discuses that yeah. sort of are like spinning swords. And yeah. so that it's a human scale of and his relation, you know, when he goes to sleep, he sleeps with the disc, his hand on the discus and over his heart. So it's very much like a sword. You have that kind of format. 
as I said, there's just a weird fitness to it, just the same way like the heavy metal imagination that we had at the beginning, where you, you have this kind of Frank Frazetta character who's like about to fight aliens or on some otherworldly planet. And it's just a very, very strange kind of resonance there. Yeah. And I'm not really sure what it is, but... Um, I think part of it is that what we call the Middle Ages, at least the first half of it, was a post-apocalyptic landscape. It was the post-apocalyptic well, landscape. Well, like the 14th century, the latter half of the 14th century, where the countryside is just emptied out. Like a casual stroll in the countryside would show you villages that are being reclaimed by the landscape, that all the you know vines and plants like are growing over entire villages that have been wiped out by the plague. That is some real post-apocalyptic shit that was commonplace then. Yeah, or sumptuary laws, you know, laws telling people how they can dress. They were made necessary by the fact that half the people were dead and all these clothes were lying around and like peasants were putting on like noblemen's clothing because it was just there. That like It was decoding the whole structure. So they had to put in like mm. laws for the first time. It wouldn't have been possible to break uh, sumptuary laws before the plague. I'm th That's on a small, I'm thinking more of like, let's say the year 350 to, you know, 700 in Europe is essentially the post-apocalyptic landscape of the Roman Empire. What we call feudalism is this kind of like imminently emerging structure that's playing off or, or like using some of the notions and ideals of the past, but in this new improvised way, there's almost kind of a Mad Max kind of feel for the, you know, the first few centuries of that time. So I think our mind goes there because we all know, I mean, that if everything were to collapse, what would arise, at least temporarily, transitionally, would be some kind of feudalism, right? I think that that's at least a good guess, you know. It always seems to go there. You think of Jack Vance, other Dying Earth writers who imagine the far future looking a lot like the past, but not just any past, specifically a kind of feudal or neo-feudal past. Even Mad Max, you know, like uh, there's something about it that... Um, well, in, the, in this novel, too, it comes up in the arcology, which is the word for these large, self-sustained, cybernetically closed living systems like this immense pyramid. And those, too, have this kind of very structural, like it's literally this sort of hierarchy. And it, what it reminded me, I was like, well, how many arcologies have I actually visited? Well, none, really. But one that was definitely inspired along those lines is Paolo Soleri, who built Arcante in the Arizona desert and he was a visionary architect and he was building not just uh, you know an architecture but a kind of social architecture and it had a very groovy kind of avant-garde organic kind of thing a lot of hippies went there for a while and then other people would call you know people would go there and live but the basic model the basic social model and even the architectural inspiration was really medieval cities so there was a way in which the appeal of that kind of hierarchy, at least architecturally, we also see in the Nightland through this sort of pyramid. But the actual politics of the place aren't very well explained, but it seems more anarcho-organic. I mean, you have no sense of there being sort of kings or rulers. There's no discussion of that at all. The higher-ups are all people of, are all men of knowledge who are observing the monsters and who are constantly keeping track of what's happening outside. So it's an interesting kind of utopia that isn't really explored, that has a medieval quality, but also points towards some other human potential. Yeah. A kind of weird technocracy, but 
but also a kind of weird theocracy in the sense that these learned men, as you say, uh, what's the word? Montuas Monstruwakan or something? Monstruwakan. What a weird... <laughs> so Monstruwakans, <laughs> those are the sages of this world. And, and the protagonist is of their kind, like he's training to be one as well. They certainly occupy the top tiers of the pyramid. But it's not because they're the top dogs, it's because that gives them the best vantage point over the Nightland to keep watch on the Nightland. But they do seem to have a kind of like uh, authority of sorts, or like they're elders, and people just willingly listen to them. It's weird, like the society, when I try to imagine, it's weird, because on the one hand, it seems really hierarchical. At one point, he has a whole bit about how people who were born in the lower levels have different oxygen intake, and so they grow differently. So people have to move through the different levels so that everyone gets the equal amount of oxygen over time or something like that. I, I, maybe <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was it. the idea that because there's different qualities of oxygen, when people are born, they go on a journey through the levels to find the level that's oh. best for their body. So it's actually, le it's a little more open-ended. Right. Right. That's what I right. mean. It's like, oh, well, like a, a more top-down utopian technocracy would have everybody in these like casts, but you don't get quite the sense of caste no. there. It's no. more fluid than that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, the the detail of the Monstruwakans and the social order, the way they appear to be atop the social order, both literally and figuratively, actually reminds me a little bit of a detail from Last and First Men, which is another radium age science fiction novel, where the last men who are living on uh, Neptune, I guess, the uh, greatest expression of their civilization is astronomy. And it's almost like kind of a solemn duty of people in the society to spend years observing the heavens. And that was an interesting thing because in both there's a utopian move of imagining a kind of rule of philosopher priests, a kind of intellectual elite that presumably would have the benevolence and wisdom to run things better than we are capable of running our own affairs. But quite apart from that, there's also the sense of watching being absolutely the central occupation of the society. And in the Nightland, it's actually really trippy that you have uh, maybe a hundred million people who are unable to leave this vast structure because it's just too dangerous. And so their society is occupied in staring basically like a cat that's never allowed to go outdoors, staring out yeah. the, the bedroom window at the world going by. The importance of what do you call embrasures. So there are places in the pyramid where people go to look out at the nightland. And looking out at the nightland seems to be their form of like entertainment. So mm -hmm. people are constantly looking out at this weird non-human landscape out there. And there's a moment where the protagonist remarks that you know, it's one thing to be looking at these things from inside the pyramid. It's quite another to be like there next to them. And uh, he says, you know, I had no idea when I was in the pyramid and the great redoubt looking out how real this would be or how this would feel. You know, there's this circle of light around the pyramid and they describe how the monsters who can't cross this magical boundary they'll stick their heads over it and the light from the circle yeah. Yeah. illuminate them. And then, you know, you can imagine all the people in the thing, whoa, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a crazy chapter right before he sets out on his quest where a bunch of youths 
you know, like drunk on their own idealism or whatever, because everyone's obsessed with this other pyramid that's been detected and everyone's wondering what's going on at this lesser pyramid and everybody wants to go out and find it. And this bunch of youths like basically just storm out uh, and then start to venture out into the and then everyone just gathers to watch them. And it's horrific and entertaining at the same time. You can imagine that these people are like the tedium must be a problem in this society <laughs> and everyone's going <laughs> to watch it. And then, of course, this big gang of young, crazy people, they just get mashed. They just get totally destroyed by these monsters. And it's those that come back completely demoralized and now have to be, I think they have to be severely punished for having broken the rules. But there's a kind of spectator culture going on that I find really yeah. interesting. So the archaeology, yeah, sorry, you want to say? Oh, and this is yeah. this is where I wanted to go, actually. It's like this motif of watching is woven into the story on multiple levels. Like the most dread monsters are watchers. Right. Both, you know, the silent ones that don't do anything except move around silently and apparently keep watch. And these vast mountainous, literally mountainous beings that, you know, one of my favorite details for one of the watchers is that it moves so slowly from year to year. Nobody could ever observe it moving. But over 20,000 years, it approached the pyramid. Like you have these kinds of strange beings that watch and are watched. But beyond that, like, what you were saying right at the beginning, JF, how the particular flavor of horror is not additive as it is in, say, Lovecraft's fiction, where he piles on adjectives and adverbs, descriptors, but subtractive. And it reminded me of actually a kind of childhood terror when you're trying to go to sleep and there's a heap of clothes on the other side of the room and your eyes start playing tricks on you and you can suddenly see a pile of clothes transform into a monster and you're sitting there and you can't quite tell but you're not going to get out of bed to go check because that shit is way too terrifying and so that sense of watching this is a society of people watching the monsters watch the people watching and also, when he finally sets out into the Nightland, the hero largely watches. Like, yeah. I was reading this and I was like, this is very satisfying in many ways. But also, maybe because he made the monsters so OP, they're so overpowered that he can't believably get into fights with them, that much of the novel is him just sneaking around trying not to be detected. It's actually quite different from a lot of epic heroes quests where you're going to be meeting uh yeah. you know monsters that scale up until you get to the final boss this is actually a little bit like a video game like i've been playing a lot of zelda tears of the kingdom but like a lot of people who enjoy those kinds of open world games like the fact that you can choose not to get good at fighting at all that you can just kind of sneak past all the monster caps yeah. reading this novel is like playing an open world adventure game where you don't do any of the fights and that occurred to me this would make a great video game this this book yeah. uh but i i want to just um agree there phil and say that this is one of the things i love about this book and one of the things that I think motivates my comparison of it to Beckett, because the same thing happens with Beckett's protagonists. They see a lot. They don't act. They can never act. They can never get to the point where they would act, but they witness. And that's something quite modern to me. You know, when Deleuze is describing mm -hmm. the shift from early to post-war cinema, he predicates the shift on this moment where there's no way to act anymore. After Hiroshima, after Auschwitz, 
There's no action. All you can do is watch as the nightmare of history unfolds before you. Mm. But there is a kind of nobility in witnessing and seeing. And I love those parts where he chooses to sneak around and see something. You read a Robert E. Howard story. If Conan hears a sound in the jungle, you know he's going to fight whatever made that sound in the next scene. Exactly. Uh, whereas here, most of it, no, he skirts past, he sneaks by. Uh, one of the, some of the things aren't even confirmed. We don't even know what that sound was. And, and yeah. he just, and as he piles on these ambiguous kind of semi encounters, you get the sense of a living world. It feels like, like in a great open world game or in certainly in a good tabletop role playing game, you're wandering through this imaginal landscape and you're sensing that, oh, if I'd gone down there, this whole story would have been different, but he's choosing his path carefully and his goal is to survive. And it's almost like the author will not just simply allow him to survive. If he makes the wrong choice, he'll just die and that'll be the end of it. So it's like, there's a sense of real danger. I had moments reading this where I was like, surely this is some kind of real weird ass psychedelic vision that, that Hodgson had. Surely this is not just made up. It feels like a trip report at some yeah. point. Yeah, I don't know. You'd notice that a House of the Borderland offers a kind of similar sense of this guy must have had an incredible dream life or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but another factor of this watching tip is the fact that he is watched as right. he goes through the nightland. And so those same thousands who were looking at the youths are looking at him. And so yeah. even as the narrative is all about this solo, single man out alone in this landscape of terrors and potential threats, is that he, in the first part, is buoyed up by the fact that people not only are watching him, but if he turns around and waves his discus, he it's can like, sort of no! hear yeah. the hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> screaming and they're not just even watching from these embrasures they're also watching view tables that allow right. tens of thousands to watch one image so it's it actually gave me a very peculiarly contemporary sense of the way in which one event can be so hypermediated and so scaled that you have literally the whole planet watching so, the World Cup or whatever it yeah. is. It's another first for Hodgson because it's like he's prefiguring like Hunger Games or The Running Man and all the idea of the, the televised quest or the spectacle quest, which is attended to. What that does that's so wonderful here is it sets up this extra moment that in a different kind of adventure wouldn't even be, you know, he would be adventuring and on his own the minute he left the redoubt. But here there's a second moment where when he leaves the visibility of this immense pyramid, right. when he steps off of the nightland and you start a new chapter that's called, you know, down, what's it called? Down the uh, mighty slope. So right. he starts to descend and in descending, now he's cut off of right. all that attention, which isn't just his knowledge that they're paying attention to him. Because this is a psi flavored novel, he's actually partly sustained by the goodwill and the attention mm -hmm. of these people. And so now he's finally on his own. And then the first paragraph of this chapter totally resonates with the existential theme in Beckett and also this Darwin stuff. And I, so I just want to read it because it's just so tasty. So he's now he's suddenly outside the view of all of his fellow humans. Now I went downward very quiet and slow into that darkness and did make but a cautious way. 
For now you shall know me truly wrapped about with such a night as did seem to press upon my very soul, and such as you shall never have seen nor felt, so that I did seem lost even from myself, and did appear as that I went presently in unreal fashion, and did pass onward forever and forever through everlasting night, so that odd whiles I did make to walk with random, as that I stepped no more upon this earth, but did go offwards into the void. So that's that whole void vision. But then, yet, was this foolishness of the mind set straight and proper each time that it did come about. For lo, I did kick against an upjutting rock here and fall upon a great and unseen boulder there, and so was shaken very quickly to a sound knowledge that I trode the hard and actual earth and had no true dealings with unreal matters. So cool, because mm. they're both true. It's yeah. not that he's actually been delivered from the fantasy into this hard, real world. It's that the hard, real world is doing the same thing as right. this recognition of the void that awaits outside the sort of circle of humanity and the circle of those old mythologies. And it's such a beautiful kind of reminder of that materialist element, that speculative materialist movement where the acknowledgement of the hard actuality of matter and space-time and natural law don't relieve you actually of the existential gloom or the, or the wonder or the wondrous horror of the situation at all. It really just kind of takes it to another level. But that part seems so eerily existential to me, even if it's in a kind of supernatural horror language, like especially when he talks about making random movements like he doesn't even try to like direct his his walking anymore it's just random contingency everywhere thinking about the sounds encountered in the nightland and particularly that passage that I read out where he's hearing the sound that's simultaneously intimately close and incredibly distant. And these are the, the doorways in the night that open up. I was thinking about the idea of uh, acousmatic sound. After World War II, there was a French composer named Pierre Schaffer who was the first person to start what was called musique concrète, which is music made up of recordable tape, because recordable tape, an invention of German scientists during World War II, and it was widely adopted after World War II, suddenly sound is malleable like clay. You can take a little snippet of magnetic tape that has a sound on it, and you can clip it onto other sounds. You can layer them in multi-track recordings and so on. And sound becomes malleable and adaptable. And also, you have an acceleration of what another Schaefer, Armory Schaefer, Canadian composer, called schizophonia, the sense of sounds being divorced from their origins so that you hear the sounds, but you don't, in fact, have the effect, that the action that Walter Ong was talking about. And Schaeffer, in fooling around with musique concrète, developed this idea of acousmatics, which he got from a story of 
Pythagoras' disciples being forced to listen to his teachings from behind a curtain for five years, like you weren't really initiated into Pythagoras' circle until you'd been listening to all the teachings, but from behind a curtain. And Schaeffer really liked the idea of cultivating a kind of listening he called acousmatic, where you're listening to sounds in themselves without speculating about their origins or trying to place them with an agent. And a later theorist named Michel Chion, who is a theorist of film, music, and sound, took that idea and sort of transposed it into his idea of the acousmetre, which is the acoustic being. So when in a film you have sounds without agents, like think of Galadriel's voiceover narration at the very beginning of Lord of the Rings. You have this omnipotent kind of voice of God that has some of the attributes of God. It's omniscient and invisible and omnipotent. It can be anywhere, omnipresent. And there's a kind of I don't know, almost generic spookiness about the Akusmatra, which is something that Mark Fisher commented in his book, The Weird and the Eerie. And so the fact that uh, Hodgson is constantly playing with sounds that come to us as tremendously powerful, but entirely separated from the being that they could be presumed to represent is a kind of an interesting way of mining this vein of strangeness. But it occurs to me also that it's not just sounds. It's like everything in this novel. It has that kind of quality of insecure reference. Like seeing is believing, right? The idea is like, oh, if you see something, you know what it is, or you can locate it in space. But as we've already talked about in this conversation, that's not really true. Like where he sees this far off thing that could be a mountain or it could be another monstrous watcher. The whole condition of this world is sort of acoustic, even the visual parts. I mean, it's definitely perspectival. And there is a, a, another marvelous passage where he talks about imagining how the constellations that we see, if you were on another planet, would actually look very different and that actually everything is like that. You know, and he really has this moment of like pure relativist perspectivalism, which to my mind is that kind of acoustic feel where everything is sort of just on, essentially just phenomenal and the way that vision tricks us into substance is less grounded or pervasive with acoustics. So when you're seeing something, yes, it's just a phenomenal uprising of signals and you can look, think about it energetically, but I'm sorry, there's a chair there. It's a chair. Yeah. If I go over there, I'm going <laughs> to sit on the chair. But even though sound does that as well, like, oh, the truck passed by, it was a real truck. I'm sure if my body was there, I would have seen a truck. If I would have run into it, it would have hit me. Like, I don't doubt that. And yet it's closer to the pure sort of, you know, phenomena of it. So it, I think acoustics really do lead us to a more ephemeral sense and, and even an uncanny sense of the world. But I, I love that way of saying mm -hmm. that even the visuals, even yeah. the things that are encountered have that kind of lack of substance. And the other thing about the sound is very interesting is, of course, he's cruising through the space and then he hears or receives, maybe is a better term, the master word incoming, indicating that the next signal is going to be a legit because that's what the master word does. The master word, it's almost like cryptography where the master word is like, okay, the, the signal that you're about to get is authentic. Yeah. 
And if you yeah. don't hear the master word, then the demons or the evil forces are simulating and are yeah. clearly capable of simulating pretty much any, anything that we're doing. So the whole world of signals is very ambiguous and ambivalent. So he hears the master word and then he gets a faint cry from his distant maid. And you get a very strong sense also of a world where audio is is kind of the primary ontological sense, but it's also one where noise is a real factor that yeah. signals degrade. Mm -hmm. And that's a, such a marvelous tension there because it's something you see in like a you know, in Schreber, you know, when he's having his grand, crazy metaphysical visions in the late 19th century, he's basically crazy. He's having these kind of Philip K. Dick visions of like astral transmissions and everything. But in that world, too, the signals degrade. And one of the features about like modernity, second half of the 19th century going forward is as we discover the electromagnetic universe, which the theosophists kind of partly transform into a metaphysical universe we in a way we're like you know we're suddenly it's huge there's cosmic frequencies there's ways of transmitting radio across the planet you know it's like this upswell but we become even more aware of noise and yeah. the fragility of those signals yeah. and so even his psychic communications have noise on the line there's a sense of signal degradation which is such a a subtle but really powerful mm. modern motif mm. where you know yeah. you're in a modern space where you're worried that there's like noise on the line and you can't can't hear the call or 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 like fast forwarding to our moment now with like deep fakes and that sort of the kind of like a kind of weird cognitive or phenomenal noise or even visual noise you know which there was a moment where one could say confidently like the sense of sight can be trusted in a way that you know, the other senses cannot, but that's no longer the case. And I think this is giving me some insight into, this is something I keep going back to, McLuhan's prediction that we were becoming more acoustic again, or more oral, A-U-R-A-L, which to me always felt so counterintuitive, even though, even though I understood what he meant. It's the simultaneity of sound. But you can see how short-circuiting of scale in a society that's mediated, in which you have viewing tables, in which you can see things that are happening very far away, very up close. And the just the sheer height of the pyramid, which enables the occupants of this great redoubt to see very, very far so that we can get a full description of, say, the House of Silence before anybody goes there in the story. There's a kind of acoustic quality even to the visual mm. aspect of that world. Things mm. are very close. They're made close by what the technologies enable, by telepathy, by whatever. And so there's this kind of bouncing around in this world that is, uh, it really does come down to perspective, a kind of perspectivism of like the Nietzsche or Leibnizian type of perspectivism where perspective is central where you're standing will really determine how the world unfolds for you which is kind of a, a no-brainer but the great thing about Leibniz is that for example is that in Leibniz subjectivity is downstream from perspective the point of view is not a subjective state that I experience the point of view shapes you it's this weird realm where there's an all at onceness to the reality but the all at onceness coalesces into a kind of spatio-temporal world that can sustain something like a story when a point of view concretizes into like a character or a, 
uh, a kind of mm. narrative point of reference. So I don't know. It's giving me some insight into like the arcology. Isn't that what we live in? We like we don't live in a physical arcology. We don't live in an architectural arcology. But isn't our hypermediated world where everything we experience is filtered through these two human devices that we have? It's almost like we were, you know, we were we are the most maladapted species in the world. Like a human being will just simply die in any environment unless they build shit, a shelter and whatnot. And so it seems like the modern era, to a certain extent, is. We have built this arcology and now, you know, we're looking out at the world and it's twice as alien as it ever seemed because mm. we live in these hyperhuman environments that kind of validate and confirm our perspective. Whereas all it takes is to walk up too close to the glass or maybe just take one or two steps outside the arcology to suddenly find yourself in the most inhuman, non-human realm imaginable. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, that quality of perspectivalism really hit me with this as, as well, in the sense of articulating the vertiginous quality of translating yourself into that acoustic space. And it's, mm -hmm. I, I think that that vertigo is really. It's nice to have it be located in fictions and in places where we can kind of work with it, because I think it's actually one of the great ambient challenges of our moment and. One of the things that when people just talk about how like weird everything is now and things feel different and there's a warp and however people are trying to articulate that is that the language of vertigo, which of course you, we can track back to Pascal if we want to, you can see it as a current that's running through and it's definitely very much part of cosmic horror. But I think that that vertigo in a way is partly an effect of being in a multi-perspectival acoustic environment where there's really no particular ground to stand on or that everything is kind of composed you know relationally which is sort of the positive side of it, it doesn't just mean like oh god there's no place to stand it's like well that's because everything is interwoven in a way that can be quite you know inspiring and interesting we don't see that side of things so much in the nightland although there is the kind of human connection which is never doubted the capacity of humans to love each other to learn from each other, not just the love of the narrator for his maid, but, you know, his relations before and the relationships of the people to the youths that go out and their care for them, even though it's kind of a mass media spectacle, it doesn't have the nihilism and cynicism no. of our mass media spectacles. There is some kind of interdependence that keeps the queasiness of the vertigo at bay, you know, and in a right. lot of ways, I feel that that's kind of one of the places that we're we're at kind of existentially is, is having to find a new way to navigate, to ground ourselves, but it's not going to come through the desire to like make something really concrete and limited. Although a lot of people are trying to do that and that's part of the problem, but has to do with opening up to a, a vertiginous quality that is also sustained through relations. I wanted to say one more thing and it just it just because it was I, I should have said it earlier on because I think it sets it up but it's it's a really key point I think that as a really significant and kind of under remarked event I mean it's well known but I think it has a bigger effect than people acknowledge that this book wouldn't have happened without the end of the time machine mm -hmm. in, in 1895 and I, I think it's like an event in imaginal history so you basically could have ended the story 
without going into the far future. The time traveler does not need to go into the far future. We got it, the Morlock, the Eloy, the social criticism, da, 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 it's all done, great. Well, no, 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 let's go into the far future. Let's see where this puppy ends, which means let's see where the new Darwinian model of immense eons of time take us into the post-human. So it's, we're already like doing something very new imaginatively. And where do you wind up on? Is it some bizarre seething landscape? No, it's kind of like a weird seascape, you know, kind of recognizable. There's nothing that familiar, but it's also just like an ocean and rocks and these crabs. Right, yeah, the crabs. Right. The crabs. <laughs> Everybody remembers the crabs. And I yeah. there's something really key about these crabs, which you see also in the Nightland. There's a couple of different places where you mm -hmm. get the crabs. And in a way, the arcology is a big crab. Right. It's like a big, you know, you put, you create an exoskeleton around an exoskeleton. the exoskeleton, right. just hunk down, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's more about the way in which within the Darwinian framework, it's not just that it offers a rebuttal to you know, traditional uh, Christian cosmology and, and sense of time, but that it opens up a new imaginal possibility that is both wondrous and horrible, that is very material in the sense that it respects natural law, it respects the materiality of the earth, but also highlights its non-human, non-communicative, speculative realist dimension. Mm -hmm. And what it does then is that it introduces a modern sense of the what I mean by the cosmic. So we talk about cosmic horror and, you know, like Lovecraft, where there's a sense of the immensity of space or that the nefarious entities don't have a human framework at all. They don't even have an earthly framework. And that's like a kind of dimension of the cosmic. But another way of thinking about the cosmic that I think is really important for moderns is that it replaces the knowable religious or mythological universe with the universe of materialism, but through its sublimity, through its excess, through its innumerable immensity, its proximity to the infinite, it offers another opportunity to bring forward some of those religious and spiritual and mythological ideals, but they're reframed. And that, to me, that's the note of the cosmic. Otherwise, it's just like, whatever. It's just materialist. It's just the immensity of the materialist heavens. That's not the cosmic. The cosmic is the attempt to reinscribe something of the imagination, something of the human heart, something of, of the... The marvelous. The yeah, the marvelous and, and the yeah. speculative potential of the human project into this alien environment. And it's never perfect, it never totally works. There's usually a rupture, there's usually a failure. There is the sense of the horror and of the, the non-human crushing it, but it's, it's an encounter that I feel like that's partly why you get these layers in this novel and in so many other examples of cosmic horror is that you're, you're just getting right to the edge of where the human project breaks down in the face of this kind of materialist, meaningless universe that we know isn't really meaningless at, at its heart. So it's, it, it just raises the stakes in a way on imaginative literature. And I feel like that scene in the time machine sets it going and that this is this really powerful iteration. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.